What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Chase Thomas pod, the Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. Hello, and welcome back to a Tuesday afternoon edition of the Chase Thomas podcast. I am the aforementioned Chase Thomas, and I am joined by a first timer, the Athletics Scott Powers, who covers the Chicago Black Sox, uh, Black Sox, Black Hawks up there <laughs> in Chicago. Scott, good afternoon, sir. How are you? Good. Good. Thanks. Thanks for having me. How uh how cold is it at the moment in Chicago? Uh it's it's not awful. It's I think tonight we're supposed to get a good uh get our first major snow of the winter, so it'll be it'll be a little bit more interesting. But weather wise it hasn't been uh you know, I'm sure relatively it's it's a little bit colder than than what you're used to, but it's uh yeah, it's it's okay, thirties, forties. It's it's uh it's bearable. It's it's always that wind chill that sort of differentiates uh whether Chicago's bearable or not. So if if the wind's going, you know, we can get to those single degrees. If the wind's all right, it's usually uh, you can go out and, you know, you go out at least not have to bundle up too much. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm curious. Tonight's supposed to be a good, uh, good snow, and uh, it'll make, uh, you know, once the snow is here, it doesn't seem to melt very quickly, so it's always a little bit of an adventure. Okay, okay. I like it. it we got, like, three to four inches here in Knoxville uh, for Christmas, okay. and uh, it was mind-blowing. As yeah, someone I- from Atlanta... Not familiar with a lot of snow, so it uh, was pretty cool. Yeah, one of, one of my cousins, my first cousin, actually, I'm pretty close with. Lives in, uh, he's in, he's uh, lives in Knoxville, so I, I, I do recall seeing that on Facebook, uh, him posting, uh, uh, posting a little bit of snow and, and mentioning how rare that was. So I, uh, I, I probably know about uh, about Tennessee basketball and football more than I than I probably should at this point, but I, uh, I do, I do have some knowledge in Knoxville. I like it. I like it. You're endearing yourself to the podcast. I, I like that, Scott. You didn't have to do that, but I, I love that uh, you're trying to do that. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with knowing too much about Tennessee basketball at the moment. They're they're a very good program. They have a national title aspirations. Now, yeah, it, I heard about how deep, I, I honestly just had a, a long conversation with my cousin the other day, so I heard how deep they are. And then uh, I also heard how everyone wants to run the football coach out of town. And mm-hmm. he's, a, he's, a, he's a season ticket holder for I actually think he didn't uh, uh, get the basketball because they wanted to uh, charge him a lot and put him up in the uh, the rafters. But he's season ticket holder, season ticket holder for both. So I, uh, I, 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 like I said, I, I do know a lot about the the Volunteers, uh, which uh, I, I'm not sure is a good thing being in Chicago. But it's, I, I do have some knowledge. <laughs> okay, okay. Is have you? Do you see any Volunteers in Chicago? Are there any? Because I just imagine Chicago is just like. Uh, Iowa, Michigan, Michigan State, and like Wisconsin, just all over the place. Yeah, no, no, I, I don't know if Tennessee. Like a lot of the bars are, uh, they'll be dedicated to a team, and and you'll get random teams. Like it'll, like uh, there's a bar by my house that's a uh, University of Ohio or a bar. You know, like you'll, it, it's a lot of Midwestern ones, but I think you know there's fans who get together for Alabama or you know. Uh, so, you know, a lot of them are Big Ten. I mean, you'll have like five Michigan State bars or five Wisconsin bars or whatever all throughout Chicago and, you know, Iowa. And I, I went to Indiana. So um, it, it's certainly a big, you know, Big Ten country here. But 
Yeah, there, there probably is. A, I mean, it's, it's just a melting pot, too. People who come from everywhere and have gone to college everywhere. That I, There may be a Tennessee bar somewhere. I wouldn't be surprised even if it's a, um, you know, it's, it's a small thing. It seems like bars try to latch themselves down to different communities, you know, even with the Premier League now. And, you know, you'll find like a Steelers bar or a Raiders bar for, for the NFL. And um, I, I imagine there might be a Tennessee bar somewhere. I, I, I haven't been to it personally, but I wouldn't be surprised by it. Well, once the pandemic opens up next summer when the weather is better um scott I, I have an assignment for you so i hope you're writing this down yeah, this is a seven month for, assignment uh, yeah i'll uh, <laughs> give me a good reason to have some drinks so yeah there you go go find it um so how have you uh, have you spent your time this off season with uh without any hockey what, what have you what have you been up to how have you made it made it work yeah no we've you know since march we've uh you know there's two of us on the blackhawks piece for the athletic and another person mark lazarus um and uh you know we've just it's been a lot of enterprising and you know there was uh there was some hockey there for a minute so we you know we got some uh blackhawks were in two series we got to cover that but it's a lot of uh you know blackhawks had the uh 10-year anniversary of their first uh the 2010 cup so we we definitely did a lot of stuff around that and you know you're uh, you had the draft, and and now this last week, you know, the Blackhawks uh, yesterday announced that uh, Kirby Dock, who their, you know, their top young player, had surgery on his wrist and he's out for a while. So we reacted to that, and this morning, uh, there's news about Jonathan Taves. Uh, you know, he's been dealing with some sort of illness that's making him fatigued and lethargic, and he's having tests done, and he's not getting ready for training camp. And um, you know, it's uh, it, it's certainly there's a lot of rights about that, and you know, project to the future and what that means for the Blackhawks now. Well, and the years down the line and, you know, certainly with Kirby Dock, who was expected to kind of, you know, start asserting himself more into Taze's role as the number one center this year. Now you uh, race a year of development. And um, so, you know, there, there's been enough to write about to get by. And certainly, you know, it was an offseason where the Blackhawks uh, didn't resign Corey Crawford, who, you know, was in that for two. There are two of their cups and have been a long time goalie for them. And they traded Brandon Saad and announced the rebuild. And, um, you know, even the Blackhawks too was, you know, they, they had, there was certainly news around the Blackhawks logo and whether they were going to stand behind that. And, um, you know, they had fired their president in, in April and there's been an interim president and then they finally, uh, made some, uh, staff announcements with that. So it, it feels like anytime there's been a lull, something, something pops up and you're kind of reacting to the news. But, um, you know, it's, it's crazy that it's been, uh, you know, nine months, uh, since the last regular season game and, not a lot of hockey in between there, but we've we've gotten by, and um, it'll be uh, it'll be certainly welcome when uh, training camp opens on Sunday, and there's something to actually attend to, and um, and then once the season gets rolling, and then uh, and obviously hopefully uh, you know the season probably isn't going to be normal, but hopefully the uh, the 2021-22 season we're a little bit back to uh, some normalcy, being able to attend games and fans being at games and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, it was, uh, it's been a grind, but it's, uh, it's been, you know, you're getting by and hopefully there's a uh, brighter days ahead. How much do you love zoom press conferences? Oh God. I, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I hate them. I hate them with all my life. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's not fun. Yeah. I mean, even, you know, it was it's the tough part of covering the playoffs this past year, even, uh, was, you know, watching all the games on the, you know, on TV or computer or whatever. And, trying to cover them off of that and then certainly having the zoom press conferences. So even now it'll, it'll be welcome to be able to attend some home games in the, the United center here in Chicago. And, you know, we won't be traveling, but, uh, and all the press conferences will still be, uh, you know, via zoom, but 
um, it'll be nice to actually be at something and you don't have to have a reason to put on some dress clothes and, um, you know, instead of just kind of lounging around the house or, uh, working in my home computer. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's certainly, it's hard when you're trying to be, uh, being unique and you're all doing the same interviews and certainly athletic, uh, you know, or, or whether it's, you know, something exclusive or something different, it's certainly how we kind of thrive in a, uh, um, in a subscription model. So it's, it's, it's been challenging to kind of create different and new content and, um, but it is what it is. I mean, we're, uh, so we're all kind of dealing with the same thing. So I don't think anyone loved the zoom calls, but they're, uh, at least there's something. Yeah. Well, you mentioned doc and twos. Um, obviously that's what a lot of Blackhawks fans are thinking about right now. Um, let's start with twos. What do we know? Cause he's in his early thirties it's just an unexplained lethargic feeling that he's that, that like they're being very obviously they're not revealing too much about what's going on here, but he won't be around for training camp. And um, it's kind of scary, right? Like what um, what are you what are you hearing and what are you thinking here? Yeah, it's uh, they're they're obviously vague and they're vague for a reason. I, I'm sure that they know something more or why or. Um, you know, I, I don't, uh, yeah, I certainly don't want to speculate too much. And, you know, it's, I, I think everyone's mind goes to COVID and whether he had it or, um, you know, I, I think they might've announced if he had it now. And, um, but you know, like it, it's, um, yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, it's certainly, it, it's, it's alarming to consider, you know, considering that they weren't more specific and it, it sounds like something that he doesn't understand and he's seeing some specialists and, um, uh, you know, he played uh, in the return to play and, and he played pretty well. Um, so I don't, I don't know if it was affecting him then he was playing it through it or, um, you know, what, what kind of came up this off season. So it's um, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I don't know enough to, to really talk in details. And, and at this point it's a lot of just speculation, but from what they put out today, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's obviously it's enough where he, he doesn't plan to be playing anytime soon until he gets some answers and um, you know, there, there's the health aspect and, you know, Jonathan Taves, you know, uh, just, uh, you know, what he means to this organization and, uh, and, you know, just wanting him to be, uh, him to be healthy and to figure it out, or, you know, just from what they said, just, uh, you know, not having ideas gotta be, you know, just scary. Um, and then from the hockey standpoint, obviously he's um, yeah. I mean, he, he's been their number one center for, for more than a, for more than a decade. Um, he's, uh, you know, he's the glue, he's, he, he's the leader and, um, you know, it's, uh, his presence on and off the ice is going to be felt by the Blackhawks. So, um, you know, I, I think all fans are, are worried about Taves as a person first, but certainly know the impact, uh, not having will have on the ice too. And, um, you know, you couple that with, uh, you know, with all the other moves this off season and the other injuries and it, and it could be a, a pretty dismal season for the Blackhawks. Um, and we'll get on to the the season with the Blackhawks in a second. But um, what about Doc? What are you uh, What are you hearing there? Yeah, you know he he suffered an injury with the, with Canada at the World Championships. Um, I, I know that the World Championships were important to Doc, like a lot of Canadian young players. You know, they grew up watching it, and you know the Blackhawks um, allowed him to go. And the you know the, there's an inherent risk of allowing someone to play hockey. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I think a lot of people will say that the risk 
was worth taking. You know, he was playing with a lot of confidence. He was going to play in this major tournament. Um, and, and then on the other hand, it's, this is what could happen, and, and it occasionally does. So it, it's obviously a bad luck, and um, it, you know, it wasn't what anyone was hoping, but it, it, it did happen. So I, I think the Blackhawks do. Um, you know, this this was going to possibly happen, and it did happen. And um, so I, I think from that standpoint, the Blackhawks have to be questionable a little bit. I mean, there are other NHL teams that decided uh, not to allow their players to play in the World Championship, especially players who are going to play in the NHL this season because of the fear of this this sort of thing could happen. So I, I think from that standpoint, the Blackhawks do probably deserve a little bit of criticism. Um, but for, for for Doc, you know, this is uh, this was going to be a huge season for him. You know, he he'd really come on, you know, when after uh, after the the pandemic break. Um, and then to come back for the playoffs, he was a different player. And it seemed like the second season already where he was, um, you know, he was playing the most five-on-five ice time. He was arguably their best center. Um, and, then, and then you carry that over to the World Junior Championships and what we've seen in practices and scrimmages. And he was, uh, he was playing a lot of confidence. And then um, going into this NHL season, you know, he was, uh, was going get, to get more responsibility, more ice time. And, um, you know, this season was probably going to be a struggle for the Blackhawks either way. But uh, one of the upsides was going to be, you know, seeing Doc's uh, continued evolution and, and knowing that he's going to be such a big part of the future. And um, I don't think that injury changes that in the long term, but it certainly does in the short term. He's going to lose uh, a year of development and, um, you know, something that, you know, he, he can pick up on next year. But I, I think the Blackhawks sort of had it in mind that, you know, we're going to rebuild in the short terms. Um, so that we can win in a few years while while Kane and Taves and Keith and all these guys are still under contract. And I I think this changes the uh, the trajectory a little bit where, um, you know, it's, it's more time off the ice for doc and then, um, and then kind of throwing him back into the the, the firing and next year and and asking him to play that role. I I don't know how realistic that is. And, you know, they're certainly giving him time to make sure that the, uh, the wrist heals and, and everything, but, you know, that much time from away from hockey and, um, and not playing, you're going to need some time to kind of get going. And, and I felt like he was really at a, you know, really good place mentally and physically. And, um, you know, I, I assume that he can get back there, but it's going to take, take some time. So, um, this season could have been huge for his development and now the Blackhawks and, and Doc have to put it a, a year on pause and, um, kind of pick up from there. But it's, uh, yeah, that, that was certainly, you know, the tapes news is huge and, but also his Doc's, uh, you know, considering where he was kind of projected this season. In your estimation, do you think Blackhawk fans should expect the team to be better this season than they were a season ago? No, no, I, I, I think it's, uh, I, I think the Blackhawks have a chance to be one of the worst teams in NHL this year. I, I, I think you could have convinced me the Blackhawks might be okay if you had Doc and, and Taves and, and, and even Nylander, um, you know, who's uh, who had surgery uh, recently too, and he's he's probably going to miss the season. So, um, I think if you'd convince me all those three guys and and the goalies, I mean, the goalies is a big question mark for the Blackhawks. They, you know, they decided not to resign Crawford. Um, instead, they're going to go with some you know more inexperienced goalies who they feel like deserve a chance, and you know, Colin Delia and Malcolm Subban and. Uh, and Kevin Lincoln. And, um, so, you know, if, if you had told me that, you know, everyone's coming back and, uh, you know, maybe one of those young goalies emerges, I think Delia has the best chance And maybe, you know, maybe there's something there, maybe they're a borderline playoff team, maybe not. Um, it's a chance that they could have, 
it could have all fallen apart even with that. But you take away all Taves and Nylander and Doc, and and you add in all those other major question marks, and I I, I think the Blackhawks could be you know among the you know worst you know maybe the worst team in the league this year. Certainly Detroit and a few teams are in that mix too. But I, I think uh, I think it's going to be really hard for the Blackhawks. Um, to get by without, you know, without their top two centers and then, you know, some scoring depth and then having the issues plus uh, some inexperienced players. And, uh, you know, they're going to bring in some young defensemen, Ian Mitchell, who's going to be a rookie, probably get some time. And, you know, Adam Boquist will be in his second year, but he's certainly still kind of growing, especially in the, you know, defensive zone that um, there are a lot of question marks. So, yeah, I, I don't, I don't expect much for the Blackhawks. And, you know, I think there's ways for them to really embrace, uh, you know, like it's, maybe put a spin on this and, and try to, you know, hopefully they get the number one pick for, for their fans sake. And, you know, I, I think uh, the defense from Owen power right now, who actually played, uh, played in Chicago junior a couple of years ago. He, uh, I think he's kind of been known as the number one pick right now. And he's, uh, you know, as a defenseman, I think he could be a game changer for the Blackhawks to have in the future. And maybe you play some of the younger kids and give them some more responsibility and, uh, take away uh, expectations of winning because I'm just not sure how realistic they are right now. Interesting, interesting. Um, did you like the Carl Sutterberg signing at the time? Yeah, it's fine. It's uh, he's he's a depth option and he's he's got some hockey left in him. Um, I, I just wonder if it if it blocks a path for any young guys or how. I don't think there's any point of having guys like Soderberg and uh, Janmark and uh, some of these older veteran guys that I feel You're like an were just pieces. <laughs> I, it's more of that. I feel like those those one the Blackhawks said they're going to rebuild, so mm. that they you know they're going to have the youth movement. So I, I feel like those players are good if as long as they're complementary pieces or helping the younger players get better. If, if you're relying on those older players to be the guys, I, I don't know what you're getting out of that from the long term because you're, they're, they're certainly not a Stanley Cup contender now. Um, and I think the path to getting there is getting those younger players up to uh, up to speed. So I, I'm curious. I'm sure the Blackhawks are trying to figure this out too. And you know, a lot of lot a lot of things have happened pretty quickly here, and they're without pieces they probably expected having a few weeks ago. So. Things have certainly changed, and um, you know the Soderberg signing may have it was, it was a pretty quick knee-jerk reaction to uh, Doc being going out and, and trying to figure out how to replace him. And uh, Soderberg, I think, you know, defensively and offensively, he's 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 more of a two-way center that gives him a more all-around game. So um, you know, even now, like you have question marks on whether Andrew Shaw is going to be ready, and he had sat out most of last season with concussion and. Um, and you you add these other ones, and there are a lot of guys that could be missing, you know, to, due to various reasons. And um, I, I think they want to have enough NHL capable players, um, uh, but it, it's still balancing that with uh, you know playing some prospects and giving them enough responsibility. Where even if the season is the struggle, that that you know a year or two from now that you can look the positives that came out from the chair. It sounds like you're not a believer in the youth movement in Chicago. No, I, 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 I think it's hard. I, I think, I, I think the black, I mean, you just eliminated Kirby Doc and Alex Nylander from the season. And I think the youth movement revolves around them a lot. I, I think Doc certainly is the, the priority and he's the reason why the Blackhawks could be, uh, could be anything again in the future. 
Um, you know, I, I think Nylander certainly had an inconsistent year last year, but he's still young and the Blackhawks have high hopes for him. So I think you were going to have a better idea what Alex Nylander was after this season. Um, but now you take away this season and, and it's harder to uh, evaluate. And even, you know, like next off season is an expansion draft and you'll have to decide who to protect. And now do you protect Nylander or, um, you know, what, where, where does he kind of fit in the f- future? So, um, it, it's difficult. To, I mean, hockey is such a, uh, you need so many players to be good. So you certainly, um, you need those, those major pieces. And sometimes the way to get those major pieces is by, by not being good for long enough. You know, I, I think, I think it was said about the Blackhawks when they, when they started winning again, that the Blackhawks were, were bad enough for just the amount the right amount of time where you, you got Taves and Kane. Um, and that changed the organization. So if you get a Kirby doc and then, you get another top three draft pick next year, and those guys uh, turn out to be legit players. Your, your future seems a lot brighter. So, um, I, I think the Blackhawks pipeline is is okay right now. You know, certainly when when you have guys like the Brinkett, uh, you know, kind of ex, probably uh, ex, exceed expectations as a second round pick for him to score as many goals as he has already. Um, but you need to hit on some other players, and then um, you got to find some you know players elsewhere. You know, I mean, they they found Dominic Kubalik. Uh, in Europe, and we were able to acquire his rights from the Los Angeles Kings, and you know he was one of the top rookies last season, and they've certainly done that in the past before with the guys like you know Panarin and um, uh, Cahoon, and, and they, they've had some European players that have that have, that have really succeeded for them. So um, you know it, it's finding talent in different places. So I, I think the Blackhawks have done a decent job of, of finding some younger pieces. Uh, they haven't always kept them long enough, but. Um, and right now the pipeline is okay. I mean, they certainly need guys like Boquist and Mitchell to be legit and, um, you know, be capable of, uh, you know, playing major, you know, larger roles in the coming years, especially as guys like Duncan Keith and, um, you know, even, you know, we've seen Brent Seabrook's decline the last few years, but you need guys that are going to carry those top four roles, uh, in years four. And that's how you, uh, you know, and I guess you create cap space and you can go pursue free agents, but the best way to get, uh, you know, the pay for, pay for talent is, is to create within. And um, I think the Blackhawks have some pieces and some are yet to be proven. And now that you've erased this year of development for a couple of guys, it's, uh, it's a little bit harder to gauge what they can be in the future. But, um, you know, that they uh, they have some younger pieces that they need to really promote this year. And you know, guys like Philip Kershev, who's a center who played uh, in their AHL team last year, I think he has a chance to be a decent player. And Brandon Hagel's 21 and, uh, you made it the NHL debut in the in the last game before the pandemic, and um, you know so there, there's some guys that you know that might have a chance. And the Blackhawks need to kind of figure out where they are, and um, and and again, I, I think them having a a bad season this year isn't the end of the world as long as they get a top pick, and uh, you know if they can hit on them just like the way they did Doc, I think they're in a much better spot going forward. Yeah, what will history say about the Brendan Saad trade? Yeah, no, I, you know, Brandon Saad's weird because it's, I, I don't think the Blackhawks have won a Brandon Saad trade as much as they, you know, they, they've traded him away twice um, and acquired him once that I, you know, like, the, I don't think the Blackhawks have won any of those deals. So uh, Saad's also a player who's never really lived up to complete expectations where, you know, he was a nice piece, uh, certainly helped them win two Stanley Cups. And, you know, was, he was a rookie that first year and then, you know, 
had a little bit larger role that second time around, but, you know, he was playing online with, with hosts and Taves and the hope was that he'd evolve into, uh, you know, 30 goal scorer and the dominant, you know, the, they were hoping that he'd be the next Marion Hosa. And, um, you know, in Columbus, he, he had a little bit more of a larger role and he, he ended up scoring 30 goals there. And, you know, when the Blackhawks were looking to, uh, uh, you know, I, I guess when they, they had that drop there, they, they tried to figure out what they were missing and they, they thought they were missing Brandon Saad and, hoping that he'd come back and be uh, more of an assertive, larger player. And um, it, it just, it never happened. You know, he just, he, he's, he's been a fine player and he, and he certainly has some positive qualities, but he's, he doesn't like the, uh, I don't think he likes the attention or, or to be the guy. And um, it's, uh, I, I think he's more been more of a complimentary piece and um, probably hasn't been with the Blackhawks or hoping even in the second time around. So, um, you know, I, I still look back at, you know, I think one of the reasons for the Blackhawks demise is, um, you know, they, they had a chance to resign Saad and he was going to cost a little bit more than they expected, but they, uh, they decided to trade him before resigning him. So they, they trade him to Columbus. Um, and, uh, and obviously they, they require reacquiring him two years later, but I, I think if they re-signed Saad there, you know, at that point they'd have Saad and Panarin and you have what you, uh, you had before and, I think the Blackhawks, you know, Blackhawks could have probably kept this rolling a little bit longer. Um, maybe eventually you'd have to trade Panarin because he cost too much. But, you know, when they traded Panarin for Saad, at that point, Panarin was still going to cost them $6 million. And it was a pretty, um, yeah, it was a pretty reasonable contract for the Blackhawks, say, comparing to what you've seen other restricted free agents get. So uh, I think some of this, why the Blackhawks have struggled over the last three or four years has been their own doing, too, where it's been. It's been some cap and, and roster, um, you know, mismanagement. And But, I, uh, yeah, I, I think Saad's part of it where they probably shouldn't have traded Saad um, when they did. And, um, you know, and, and then him just not being the same player that they were hoping when they got back where he wasn't, uh, you know, he, I think he's a nice, you know, three or four piece. But, you know, if you're expecting him to be the, the leading goal scorer, or the guy, and it's probably expecting a little bit too more, too much, and and that's why I'm curious to see how he does in Colorado because I, I think he's gonna be again, uh, you know, he's a nice piece to the puzzle. I don't think he's the piece, but you put him in a team like Colorado who already has a lot of really high end pieces. I, I think Saad's gonna shine, and um, you know, could really, you know, end up being one of the reasons why Colorado could, you know, could win the cup this year. Last thing, and we'll wrap up here. Um... Who are you most excited about? This is a two-parter. Who are you most excited about watching skate for the Blackhawks this season and the storyline that uh, you're most interested in following in the next couple months? Yeah, it's got to be one of the young players. I think Ian Mitchell might be the most interesting one. Um, you know, he, he's, he'll be a rookie. Um, you know, I think he'll start up in the NHL, might get a, you know, a large role, might end up playing with Duncan Keith. Um, I, I think to see his development, him and Boquist are probably the two guys, uh, the two young guys now that all eyes will be on to see where, where they are. And certainly the Blackhawks defense has struggled in, in recent years. So I, I think, yeah, you know, some of their hopes for the future are kind of pinned to some of those defensemen. Um, the storyline, I, I think the Brent Seabrook thing is going to be really interesting. You know, Seabrook, uh, was a healthy scratch there for a bit and wasn't happy. And then, uh, admitted that, you know, he needed to have some surgeries and his body wasn't right. And he ended up having, uh, you know, three major surgeries. And um, now he's coming back hoping and, you know, expecting to play. And the Blackhawks uh, need to balance, um, you know, what's best for for the future. And, and then maybe trying to appease 
uh, their veterans. So uh, does Seabrook become a healthy scratch? Is he able to play? Will the Blackhawks decide to uh, to play Seabrook over some younger guys? So, you know, we'll see. I, I think there's a real, uh, you know, there's some drama that could that could happen uh, if not uh, maneuvered properly. So it's uh, it'll be interesting. To, I, I'm I'm curious how the Blackhawks decide to utilize Seabrook and um, you know to, to keep him happy too and. Um, I, I think there's, uh, yeah, there, there's definitely some, uh, it, it'll, it'll be one of the big talking points early in the season to see where his head is at and, and how the coach, uh, Jeremy Collison kind of managed that. So I think, uh, and then, and then just the whole, I mean, the season, it just, the way the season started when you're already missing so many players before training camp and there was pretty, uh, pretty large amount of pessimism already around this team. And now you had all this going in the training camp, it'll be, uh, you know, managing everyone's. Um, you know, uh, we'll see how quickly this gets depressing and how the fans handle that and the veterans and, and all, you know, and, and all the other players and, and organizations. So, um, it, it, it feels like it could be a long season here in Chicago. And, um, I guess the good thing is it's, it's a little bit shorter. So it's only 56 games, but it, it could be, uh, yeah, I, I feel like things can get lopsided pretty quickly here. What can we, uh, check out from you this week at, uh, the athletic? Uh, yeah, we're, 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 we're reacting to the news and, uh, you know, we'll start doing some season preview stuff. Training camp opens on Sunday and, uh, we'll certainly have uh, news from there. And, um, I imagine the general manager and Kane and Keith and all the, the big guns will kind of do some zoom press conferences here in the next week. So, uh, I'm sure we'll be reacting to that and write columns and features and, um, yeah. And then, you know, games are right around the corner. So it'll be, uh, some game coverage. So. A little bit of this and that, and uh, yeah, it, it feels weird that the season's upon us. It's a weird time of year, so it'll uh, yeah, we'll have a bunch of stuff in the athletic between uh, Mark Lazarus and I. All right, well, keep up the great work, sir. Um, keep on the lookout for some Vols bars and some Vol coverage <laughs> in Chicago, Scott. Good. Um, no, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, man. Hello, we're back on the Chase Thomas podcast. I'm the aforementioned Chase Thomas, and I am joined, as I am every week, by longtime friend of the pod of Fangraphs, John Taylor. John, good afternoon, sir. How are you? Doing quite all right on this Tuesday afternoon. How about yourself? Pretty good. The su- the, the, the snow is all gone, John. My three to four inches of Knoxville snow, my winter wonderland, has dissipated Um away from uh, my area. I'm very, very upset. I was growing accustomed to the, to the, to the snow. Yeah. It's nice getting a white Christmas too. Right. Is it snowing in New York at the moment? No, it's uh, quite sunny about 36 or so degrees. Uh, no snow though. How was, uh, how was your uh, Christmas, John? Uh, uneventful. Didn't go anywhere. Just stayed here on my own. Uh, you know, just, as with everybody else, kind of more or less stuck inside. Mm-hmm. But you know that is that is 2020. We we started it more or less stuck inside, and we end it stuck inside. And oh boy, that's feels like it's going to be that way for a little bit longer. But we'll see. There was a really good piece in the week that I um, that I read this week. Um, I love the week in general, but um, they had this piece. Let me pull it up because I think I still have it. Yeah, by David Ferris called 2021 might just be incredible. 
you really needed to read that piece, John. It was one of those where you're just like, oh, fuck, 2020. But yeah. then you uh, you read the second half and like, oh, we might not need two doses of the vaccine with Moderna and Pfizer. That it actually might be one dose is all we need. And we will get an extra 100 million doses. And what does that mean for the summer? And like baseball will have full fans maybe in July. Like that is a possibility. Who knows? Like eh, there's just all kinds of second half of 2021 being awesome. And then you read the part where it's like second half. And you're like, good God, we still got several more months of this. Yeah. Yeah, best not to think about it, I find. I find if yeah. you kind of mentally block it out, it, it's just way better for you. Yeah, I agree. Well, the baseball season might not start till July. That's something to think about because things are going so well with the the with Major League Players Association and the uh, the owners. So it should be totally fine um, and start on time. Everything should be normal. It would be my expectation for baseball. But um, what did uh did you get anything fish? Did you get anything for Fisher for uh, for Christmas? No, mostly because he's a dog, so he okay. doesn't know what Christmas. Good point. Is. Fair but point. He he enjoyed his holidays, so he had a he had a nice time. So, and hey, he got a little bit of good food at some point. I, he definitely got some scraps. I think I can't remember exactly what I gave him, but you know, there's also I mean, I do have like an old not old, but a, a toy I bought like a couple months ago that mm. I have not yet given him. So belated Christmas gift. Did you go. just forget, or were you just saving it? Um, I just let him play with his toys until they're destroyed before okay. replacing them, and. Yeah, the, he's the last two I've given him have managed to hold on for a decently long time. I like, but it. It, it may be it may be time for a new one. Um, did y'all dress him up for Christmas at all? Did you make him wear a sweater? He had jingle bells on him. Okay. <laughs> did he love it? I'm sure he so, loved it. I he absolutely loved it. Clearly, mm-hmm. just the the best best moment of his entire life. Mm-hmm. Just thrilled about it. That's what I imagine. That's what I imagine. Um, Do we touch on Josh Bell to the Nationals? This was something I wrote down in my notes because I was like, this happened, uh, I think, before we were. It happened the the 23rd, so we did not. We did not. Um, Uh, He's an interesting case, right? Because his 2019 was just categorically different than his 2020s power just like disappeared and nowhere to be found. And um, I'm not really sure what happened other than it seems like through some really um, broad analysis that uh, he was just his, he was hitting a lot of ground balls. Like he was just hitting, he wasn't hitting the balls hard anymore. And he was um, taking more pitches weirdly enough. Like Josh Bell just suddenly became far less of an aggressive hitter, which is kind of strange, but um, that was what I could surmise by peering into his numbers briefly. What, what do you think? Yeah, for the sense I got from from doing a little bit of reading around is that a big problem was just one, um, whatever preparation he was doing before the season, he he wasn't really. It seems like he was one of those guys who was thrown off by the season changing, um, by not getting a full season, by having to stop and then restart his preparation for the season. Um, obviously, being on the Pirates just doesn't help, especially because they were absolutely terrible last year. I think it's I think it's one of those dudes where you can probably chalk up a decent amount of the struggles to kind of the, the messed up nature of the 2020 season and not really being able to prepare for it the way he normally does. 
I will say if there is one concern you probably that nationals might have, it's that the other issue with Bell appears to be he just can't settle on a consistent swing. Uh, his mechanics are kind of all over the place. And that it wasn't just that his 2020 was bad. He His 2019 was really two halves. Um, he was great in the first half of the season. He was an all-star. Um, but then in the second half of 2020, I'm just going to pull up the numbers real quick for, you know, or second half of 2019, rather. Uh, he hit... Uh, 302, 376, 648 in, or I'm sorry, I'm looking at the, um, yeah, 302, 376, 648 in the first half, 233, uh, 351, 429 in the second half. So that would suggest that there's something a little more going on than just the 2020 season being weird. Maybe it is some messed up swing mechanics. Maybe it is, you know, maybe there's something else there. I do feel like it can only help going from a bad team to a good team. Um, and certainly Kevin Long is one of the better hitting coaches in baseball, so that can, that will also help having him there. But, I mean, it's, it's a buy-low by the Nationals, and it's not a bad buy-low. Bell still has two years of team control remaining pretty, at a pretty reasonable price. He's way better than what they were going, that their internal options at first base would have been, which was, I think just at the moment, Jake Knoll, because they Ryan Zimmerman is still a free agent. They let Israel Cabrera uh, walk. Eric Thames is heading to Japan. You know the the Nationals. The Nationals' offense was kind of a mess last year, and they didn't really have any solutions at first base. And Bell didn't really cost them much of anything. Two pitching prospects, one of whom is 19, so we'll probably never see him again, and the other of whom, uh, Will Crow, is a, f- a perfectly fine like mid rotation possibility, but a guy who only throws about 91, 92. And I just personally am always just super wary of guys that don't throw hard because the command and the control needs to be borderline impeccable make up for that lack of velocity and that or you have to have like astonishingly good secondary stuff and crow just seems to be kind of average in both those categories so i really don't think it's someone the nationals are going to miss even though uh internal starting depth is also kind of an issue for them at the moment but i, I think bell makes sense for them and certainly there's no reason not to try i mean he, he could be very good i mean more likely is probably just going to be a little bit above league average and they're probably going to need to add more offense anyway i mean they, they have other holes on that team too second base uh third base depending on how you feel about carter kaiboom maybe we'll get catcher to if they want to go maybe catcher if they want to get past Jan gomes um i can't i can't remember whichever whichever one juan soto doesn't play right or left field i believe left field yes is the one he doesn't play um that right now is I mean, that, that's Andrew Stevenson right now, and maybe the Nationals should see what he can do in a more full-time role, given how good he was uh, last season, in a, admittedly a pretty small sample size. But there are other places they still need to add help. And Bell is a good start, but I don't really think he's the kind of guy who turns that, who turns that lineup around and or you know, takes him back to the realm of serious contenders. That, that still feels like a 82-85 to 85 win team right now at best. Mm-hmm. And Bell, I don't think Bell is really moving the needle much in that direction. He's he's better than what they had, but he's he's not a he's not a game changer by any stretch. And if the alternative is re-signing Ryan Zimmerman, uh, Josh Bell, I think is a better flyer in, at this stage. Yeah, yeah, and that's, I think I think Zimmerman still comes back. Do you? And I think he probably ends up getting. I think he probably ends up spending what will almost certainly be his last season in baseball as a platoon bat and a defensive replacement because the other thing is and, and this is kind of an issue for the for the for the nationals in general um bell is not a good defensive first baseman and aside from trey turner they don't really have any good defenders and victor robles they don't really have any good defenders anywhere 
uh, everyone else on that on that roster defensively ranges from average to just flat out bad. Um, so you know Zimmerman would make sense as as kind of a backup guy there. And then again, because you know it'd be nice to be able to give him a you know the, one of the one of the many tragedies of 2020 baseball wise, at least for the Nationals, is that you know they never got to celebrate that World Series title in front of fans. They never got to do the full season kind of. Um, victory tour. They never got the ring ceremony, you know, and I think it might be nice. At least, I mean, obviously they're not going to do another ring ceremony because there was another team that won, but it'd be nice. I think if fans got a moment to appreciate uh, Ryan Zimmerman, finally getting that ring, especially because again, this is almost certainly his last season in baseball. He was 35 or 36 with a bad back and, you know, very clearly has kind of run out of gas offensively. So, you know, I'm I'm just hoping for him. It's you know, it's an opportunity to say goodbye in a much much better way than than what 2020 ended up being. Yeah. Well, it should be interesting. The Nationals making some little moves, and we'll see. I, it seems like they the Bell signing would be a lot more intriguing if DH was going to be a thing next year, right? Like it seems like they're uh, a team that will be hurt in that regard in this front. But um, they don't even they don't have enough hitters right now to field a DH. They, yeah. They, I think for for the Nationals, like. The DH is the DH is nice because it means you don't have to hit your pitchers. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they're not a team like the Mets where they can just casually plug in like Dom Smith into an everyday role there. Yeah, you know they don't really have Atlanta too is another team. And just because I was going through their roster the other day, that really does not have much in the way of internal DH options. And this was kind of the case for a lot of teams last year too in the NL, where it's like everyone's like, oh, the NL will invariably be better for these teams because they'll actually get the field a hitter. But for most NL teams, they just don't have that extra hitter floating around because they never plan for that possibility. And some NL teams, I'm assuming, are probably just waiting to see what the situation is with the DH. But a lot of those teams are going to have to make moves regardless because, yeah, like yeah, Bell can easily fit into that DH rotation, but the Nationals need a first baseman more than they need a DH. So if the DH does become a thing, well, then they need to go get a DH too or at least try to figure out some rotation of guys you can kind of fit into that maybe it's a comp maybe maybe dh for the nationals isn't a set position like a, a nelson cruz type but more rotation of guys like bell and soto when he needs a day off from the field and stevenson if they go get another outfielder and you know so on and so forth yeah well they have more work to do and we'll see what Rizzo has up his sleeve for washington in the coming months um don't forget folks you can listen to the chase Notes podcast on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast, check us out at chasethomaspodcast.com. Um, news items that uh, I think we need to hit before we get into our 2020 Kansas City Royal season review. John, um, the Padres have been busy. Our man, our guy, AJ Preller, has uh, has awoken once again to disrupt the baseball world. He has acquired Blake Snell, you Darvish. And I, I'm not sure how to pronounce this uh, Korean baseball star's name. Do you know how to Pat pronounce Young it? Kim. Okay, yes. Yeah. Um, to a deal, they he is he is active. He is acquiring everybody. Um, what do you make of all of this? Where where's your head at from um, the Padres' perspective? And then we have to extrapolate it to the Rays and the Cubs. And I believe I saw you tweet that the Rays are a Ponzi scheme at one point this week. I want to say I saw that. Um, I will say before we get into it, I, I, I appreciate that tweet, but also I found myself a lot more annoyed at the Cubs 
than the Rays. In yeah, yeah, and I can, and that's understandable, and I agree with that. The Rays say what you will about their particular model of baseball, which I find just repellent in every facet. <laughs> um, at least they got a good return for a good pitcher. They got mm-hmm. a top ten prospect in Luis Patino. Uh, a catcher in Francisco Mejia, who once upon a time was a highly rated prospect and just has not panned out because he's a bad defensive catcher and also doesn't make contact. But it's the Rays and they're genius of player development. So, you know, give him a shot, I guess. Plus a guy in Blake Hunt, who a lot of prospect guys really like. And a fourth player whose name I can't recall, but quite honestly, it doesn't matter. Patino is the, is the headliner here. The Cubs got nothing. They got Zach Davies, who is basically the poor man's Kyle Hendricks, who they already have. And four teenagers. Uh, one of those guys is 20, but for all intents and purposes, four teenagers. For a top 10 pitcher in baseball, I don't fucking care how old you Darvish is, how much money is owed to him. How the fuck is that the best you can do for you Darvish? How? How? If you're the Cubs, and, and let's be honest, the Cubs are here because post-2016, their plan, their mindset was clearly just, well, we have this awesome collection of young talent. We're a would-be dynasty. You know, we'll, we'll keep going for it. And then they, tr- you know, the next, the next offseason, or the next two offseasons, rather, post-2016, post-2017, they make some moves to try to keep that going. They sign Darvish. They sign Tyler Chatwood for as poorly as that works out. They trade for Jose Quintana and Cole Hamels. They make some moves. But when those moves don't work out, Darvish is really the only one of those moves that worked out, works out, worked out, and it took all the way till about the All Star break of 2019 to get there. Chatwood was a mistake. Uh, Quintana never really, Quintana never played up to I think the expectations they had, and the Cubs had to give up both Aloy Jimenez and Dylan Cease for him. Uh, Hamels was fine. They stopped trying, and that that moment right after the 2018 season, the Cubs had really two options in front of them. We keep we we say. You know, we some of these moves haven't worked. You know, we have a lot of money owed to guys like Jason Hayward and Tyler Chatwood, and our farm system is is running is running out of impact prospects. And the guys who are here are starting to get more and more expensive, and we need to decide what to do long term with them. But we're gonna we're gonna make the investment. We're gonna keep putting money into free agency. We're gonna make some ext- we're gonna sign some extensions. We're gonna give money to guys like Chris Bryant and Javi Baez. We're gonna ex- we're gonna extend this core out. We're gonna keep going for it. You know, and and just keep trying. Or, or they take a moment and say, this is not working. We need to pivot to a certain degree. We need to get younger. We need to get more guys who have more team control left. We need to try to offset some of these expenditures. Is that the ideal? Is that what a team with a, that's worth like $80 billion or whatever the Cubs are and has, you know, the Ricketts family's owners be doing? No, but there was, there was a path. Instead, they just sat around and did nothing. They just stopped spending entirely. They let their core go completely to waste without doing anything to change anything going forward. And now they're in this place where they don't get anything for Darvish. They're not going to get anything for Bryant. They're not going to get anything for Baez. They're not going to get anything for anybody. Their farm system's still not good. And the guys they picked up are years away from helping anyway. They're going for, they're, they're basically, they're basically, they have all the ingredients right now for a hard tank. The Cubs should never hard tank. They're the Chicago Cubs. They're worth more money than every person on this planet put together. it's again, I don't like what the Rays do. It is the most cynical, bad (laughs) way to operate a team. When you just fundamentally, when you tell your fans fundamentally, don't get attached to anybody. 
don't get expectations. Don't get your hopes up. This team is going to be cheap, and if they happen to win while they're cheap, so fucking be it. The Cubs are just the Cubs, though. My goodness. <laughs> Come on, man. Come the fuck on. Like, kudos to the Padres for going for it. Kudos to the Padres for recognizing that the whole point of having a really good farm system isn't just so you have, like, 10 really cheap all-star caliber players. It's so that you can trade some of them for better players who can help you win right now. That's the whole point. That's why prospects exist. It's not just to make your team better. It's to make your team better through trades, too, because not every prospect works. What are the odds of the four guys who went to Chicago for Darvish? We ever hear about any of them again? 20%? 15? Something yeah. along those lines? Luis Patino is a fantastic pitching prospect. Fantastic. He might be worth as much as Blake Snell by this time in the, by this time in two years. Does that matter if you're the Padres and you have and you have a roster that you that you believe in with good reason is capable of winning a World Series? Hell no. Right. Go get the guy who helps you now, because your time is now. The Padres understand that you that winning now. They understand too the idea that winning now is a concept that no other team really wants to do so that they can get guys for cheaper than they should. Yeah. They didn't have to give up Mackenzie Gore to get Blake Snell or you Darvish. That's insane. And some of that is a testament. Honestly, all of this is a testament to how deep San Diego's farm system is that they could pull off these two trades and give up a great, what seven prospects total um, who would, who are believe rank in the top 25 of their system and still have a really good system after that. That's crazy. And again, testament to San Diego and their player development skills. But at the same time, like they didn't have to pay as much as they probably should have, especially not for Darvish, because no one else is really trying right now. But at least they understood that this is the moment. And when you have that moment in front of you, when that window is open, you do everything in your power to open it as wide as you can. Because you never, you don't know what the future holds. You don't know what's going to happen. You might as well make your move now. I so agree. good for the Padres. Obviously, you, you don't need me to, or anyone else to tell you that the Padres are better because they have now that they have Blake Snell and you Darvish. Like, fucking duh. Uh, and Kim, too, who projects as a very interesting kind of... Uh, maybe, I don't know what the Padres plan on doing with him. I think it probably depends on what they want to do with Jake Cronenworth. But if nothing else, Kim is an intriguing bat and a very good talent and a young talent, too, um, to add to the mix. And that's never a bad thing. But it's it's just depressing, man. The team that won the American League pennant made itself intentionally worse for 2021 to cut costs. The team that won the 2016 World Series and looked like it was going to be a multi-year dynasty is now at the point where I'd be amazed if they win more than 80 games next year. They just flat gave up. The Cubs gave up. Yeah. That shouldn't happen. And the fact that it did is a really, really bad sign for where baseball is right now. That a team is rich and theoretically um, good as the Cubs can just say, nah, because that's all they're doing. They're not going to try this year. They make the playoffs in a really bad division. So be it. But I really don't think the Ricketts family cares about that. Not it's to bring everything back to the Braves, do. but my first thought when I looked at the Udars package was, uh, <laughs> why did we not trade for Udarvish? 
<laughs> if you're a contender, if you're the Braves, yeah. or if you're the, the the Blue Jays, I I don't understand where Toronto was on this. I might have been the. I mean, part of this is Darvish has a no trade list uh, that's about twelve teams long. I think mm. so. For all we know, maybe Atlanta and Toronto are on that list. Maybe he doesn't want to go to either of those places. Fine, sure, whatever. Like that, so it goes sometimes. But like, if you're a contender who isn't on that no trade list, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> You can't. No other team can come up with a better package than a mid-tier innings eater and a bunch of teenagers. That's yeah. ridiculous. That's ridiculous that that's all the Padres had to pay for you, Darvish. That's ridiculous that that's all the Cubs could get back for you, Darvish. Like Snell is one thing, you know. That actually feels like a like a at least on the on the on the merits of who is involved feels like a defensible baseball trade. The Rays got good prospects in return. You can complain all you want about their particular economic model, and I will endlessly unless someone stops me. But at least they got something good in return. Cubs got nothing. They just salary dumped the dude who finished second in the Cy Young voting last year. That's that's un, that's undef- indefensible and unbelievable that things have gotten that bad in Chicago. And they and the here's thing, they have been getting that bad. I think there are a lot of Cubs fans uh, who have kept their eyes closed as to what the Rickets are and have been and have been doing and what that team has become. In part because since the Cubs have been making the playoffs anyway, I think it's probably easy to say, oh, well, you know, you know, there's still there's still a good team. Or they're the groups of people now who are saying, like, well, it's not really smart to keep a thirty five year old pitcher if you're not gonna be that good next year. The Cubs are not gonna be good next year because their ownership doesn't care about being good next year. They could easily be good next year. The NL Central is really bad. It would take so little investment to be the best team in the NL Central. It's really not that hard. If the Cubs had kept you Darvish and signed George Springer and traded for, uh, geez, I don't know. I don't know what else the Cubs need because I haven't looked at their roster in full. But it's not, it's not like the tools to make the Cubs better were not there. All it would have cost is money. And the Ricketts have just full-blown decided they don't feel like spending that money anymore unless it's on the various Wrigleyville uh, real estate moves they're making that have no impact on the on-field Cubs but are all about making the asset more valuable to the Ricketts. The Cubs, the Ricketts ownership of the Cubs makes way more sense when you consider it this way. They bought a distressed asset and renovated it to make it more valuable. They don't give two shits what happens on the field. If the Cubs happen to win in the, in, as they're doing this, great. But they're not going to spend any more than they have to or any more than they want to, more appropriately, to make that happen. Because it doesn't matter to them. Wins and losses have so little impact on, the, on revenues and bottom lines for, for teams at this point that the Rickets can get away with just turning the Cubs into a 78-win pile of crap because they're still going to make money off all the investments they're making into Wrigleyville and all the investments they put into Wrigley Field and all the merchandising opportunities that the Cubs provide, and the billion-dollar TV network they just created that funnels money basically directly to them, and that presumably is going to charge, it, or it doesn't already charge, insanely high carrier fees to cable networks or streaming services. Like, what do the Ricketts care if the Cubs are bad? People will still buy jerseys. People will still watch games. People will still go to Wrigley, if they can. And regardless, the team will still make them money. Even if, it, even if it doesn't actively make them money, it still makes them money. They understand the value of, a, of an appreciating asset. And that's what the Cubs are, even if they're bad. No, no team. 
I, I, I almost wonder, this is a good thought experiment, I guess. How bad does a Major League Baseball team have to get and be before it is not worth money anymore or before it starts losing value? Is there any other team aside from the Rays where you can think this team is probably not worth it? I mean, not even the Rays. And the Rays is mostly because they, they play in Tropicana Field. If new ownership bought them up and committed to building a new state-of-the-art stadium in, in like downtown Tampa, Rays are worth a billion and a half dollars, two billion dollars, whatever. Maybe not that much, but it, it, it's just, uh, I, I just, I, I mean, I, I, I get it. Like if, you know, I, and, no, I don't get it. It just sucks. It just sucks all the way around. Good for the Padres. I'm really happy that the Padres are going to be, a, like, they're going to be a cool, fun team next year. The NL West race between them and the Dodgers is going to be so much fun. We are facing now, and I imagine we'll get into this when we get closer to the start of the season. We're looking at the very real possibility that the Padres are going to be like a top five World Series contender, if not like top three. I would say top three, yeah. They're right there. Yeah. They're right there because this was a team that was already good before they got Snell and Darvish and Kim, and now they're better, and they might do more. A.J. Preller might not be done. Um, if they were in the NL really Central, if you flip the Cubs and the Padres in divisions, like how many games do the Padres win the NL Central by this year? Fifteen at this point. Yeah. <laughs> like this. I mean, the, the 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 thing is at this point, the Padres better hope that the expanded playoffs stay alive because they have they if I think they would be hurt most of any team in baseball if things went back to the old format of uh, three division winners and two wild cards because they would basically get. They would basically get, uh, what, assuming the Dodgers win the West again, or at least better said, the NL West is going to be a dogfight, and whoever loses it does not want to get thrown into a one-game playoff against possibly like Aaron Nola or Jacob DeGrom or, you know, pick a Brave starter or, you know, Jack Flaherty or Brandon Woodruff. That's not how you want your, your entire po- – that's not what you want your entire season to hinge on. So I, mean, I guess that's the thing. Like I don't know. I don't necessarily know how the expanded playoff discussion is going right now. We haven't really gotten any news at all on on the, those negotiations between the league and the players' union. But I'd have to imagine that if San Diego gets a vote, they're extremely going to vote for no, 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 no. Keep the expanded playoffs. We want to be a number two seed. Um, we'll take a two game short series against like a sub five hundred like Phillies team and just and and you know make our own luck. I guess because you do not want to end up being a team that you know goes goes this level to get Snell and Darvish and whoever else and wins like 103 games and then still ends up being in a one game playoff just to then face the Dodgers in the first round too because that's the thing like the longer the Do- the longer the Padres can postpone a, po- a playoff series with the Dodgers too the better and I'm pretty sure I mean it depends exactly how it shakes out but the expanded playoff format I'm pretty sure would keep that from happening too yeah I think so um quickly before we get into the Kansas City Royals uh, portion of this podcast. Um, the Nationals are reportedly open to moving Carter Kaiboom, and sure. the White Sox signed or will sign once it's clear in late January. Uh, the younger brother of Jonas Espedes. Um, what do you make well, of both these two things? Yes. Uh, Kaiboom, I'm not sure. How, I mean, he has value, obviously, because he's young and, and under The Cubs are going to love it. The Chris Bryant Hall for Kaiboom is going to be fantastic. Cubs fans, get ready. It'd be very funny if Kaiboom were the were the the headliner of any Bryant trade. I mean, honestly, if you're if you're a team negotiating with the Cubs, you might as well just offer shit and just kind of see what sticks at this point. Yeah. Um, 
I think the issue with Kai Boom right now is he really has not shown any ability to hit at the major league level so far. Granted, we're talking about 160-some plate appearances scattered across two seasons, uh, and he showed much better plate discipline last year than he did uh, the year prior. But you're still talking about a guy who has a, an OPS plus through 165 plate appearances of 47. There's not a whole lot going good right there. And a strikeout rate of 20, basically 30%, which is way too high. And who also doesn't really seem to be all that, I mean, he seems like a solid defensive third baseman, but I, I think the question with Kaibum is, can he make enough contact to hit? And the jury is still out after, you know, his first two short seasons in, in, in the majors. So I don't really know how much value he has unless someone's basically going strictly off the tools. But, I mean, I don't know. I, I guess it wouldn't surprise me if he did become, like, the headliner for a, for a, for a Chris Bryant trade if the Nationals were into Chris Bryant. But uh, we shall see. As for the young Cespedes, I, I can't say I really know much of anything about him. I know he played for the Cuban team during the last World Baseball Classic, which felt like feels like three, 30 million years ago. Uh, I'm sure he would have been on that roster again if we'd gotten the WBC as we were supposed to this spring. Uh, boy, I'm really going to miss the WBC. Um, I don't know if he will be on Cuba's team for the next WBC now that he is um, a major leaguer, or soon to be. Uh, I've, From what I've seen, just uh, the only scouting I've seen, or at least the only, not only, but the, the notable scouting I've seen is just Eric Longenhagen over at Fangraphs, who gave him a future value grade of 35, which is pretty much a bench player right now. But at the same time, he's young. There's plenty of room, obviously, to develop. The, ge- the genetics are obviously very strong. Um, I just can't really say I know all that much about him because I don't think I've actually ever seen him taken at bat. I, at least I can't remember any anything from from the WBC that stood out to me other than him sipping on a juice box. <laughs> there you go. Um, the Kansas City Royals. Um, you were, Kansas City Royals. You were hesitant about... Uh, touching on the Royals um, this week, but we had to do it, John. We have to get them out of the way. We have to get the Mike Matheny-ass Royals out of here. Um, oh, God, I forgot Mike Matheny was their manager. Ugh. He is their manager. Um, what are the Royals improving? That's where we have to start. Are they improving as a team? I mean, sure. <laughs> Every, what they've done this offseason season. And this is where the Royals have been have had kind of a weird offseason in that they've targeted like mostly like useful veterans. Like they signed Mike Miner, they've signed uh, Carlos Santana, they re-signed Greg Holland. Uh, they're bringing in Hunter or Hunter, sorry, uh, Ervin Santana on a minor league deal, which granted he's probably not going to help much. But you know, there 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 seems to be a baseline level of competence that the Royals want to be at. It's just that that baseline also seems to be like 70 to 75 wins. Oh, Michael A. Taylor is another guy they brought in who is just an extremely Royals player, which is just tools with zero production. Um, I, I think, I mean, they, they what, what were they last year, uh, the Royals? They were 26 and 34, um, which is a 433 winning percentage, which would have been a 70 win season, which feels about right for the Royals for the Royals in perpetuity. Are they better than a 70 win team going into 2020? Maybe, probably. I mean, I guess, but like the moves they've made aren't necessarily making them better. The moves they've made are just keeping keeping them from getting worse. And I don't, I mean, like there's, there's a, there's upside on this team. Like there are some guys with some, with some tools, obviously Franchi Cordero, um, 
Uh, we've already seen a little bit of Hunter Dozier, but Hunter Dozier still has plenty of upside. Uh, Nicky Lopez is like a poor man's Nick Madrigal. The the pitching actually has a fair amount of upside. Brady Singer, Chris Bubich, uh, Josh Stomont. Uh, you know, there's some interesting. Brad Keller's only 25. I would not have guessed that. Uh, Kyle Zimmer, who's been a prospect since the dawn of time. There are some interesting option or interesting names here, kind of furthered like that that have some potential to be something, kind of down the road. Uh, particularly in the pitching, they have a lot of of interesting pitching prospects. The problem is, I don't really know where this is all supposed to go at this point. Like, and, and this has kind of been the thing with the Royals since since they since they won the World Series and then kind of just slowly fell off after that, as that core. Uh, was either moved out or aged out or, or just or just departed. What is the ultimate goal here? Mm. Is it just waiting for the likes of Bobby Witt and Asa Lacey to be ready? That's still going to be another couple of years, probably. What are you kind of What are you doing until then? Is it just kind of? I mean, I, I think I understand the strategy at least of signing someone like Mike Miner because on the one hand, he gives you innings that you don't have to put on on minor leaguers who aren't ready or on or on prospects who aren't ready. Or on you know career minor leaguers and 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 dudes who just aren't majorly caliber. Plus, uh, if he does pitch well, like you have a guy you can flip at the deadline because contenders always need pitching, and that maybe gets you a handful of extra prospects. And you just kind of keep churning through that forever and ever. It's just when 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 are the Royals going to be ready to be good? Again? And it's also like if you look at this current Royals team, uh, aside from a few of the names I mentioned, who's going to be there for the next good Royals team? Whit Merrifield's already 32. Sal, Sal Perez is 31. Jorge Soler well, I was going to mention Sal Perez. Like, he was their best hitter this past year, and he's 30. And it's like, is that the, is he ever going to be, like, it, it's the wheel's going to fall off before the Royals are even contending for the, the, not even contending for, like, a World Series, just contending for the AL Central. Right, and that's the thing. Like, a lot of these guys, like, I don't have contract figures right in front of me, but they're mm-hmm. either going to be old, they're going to be either aged out of their primes, or they're just not going to be there anymore. So what? The, this Royals team is almost like, I guess it's a bridge to a better team. The thing is, we don't really know what that better team looks like or when it's coming. This right. Royals team is just kind of spinning it. The Royals are just kind of spinning their wheels until something better happens. And I think some of that is just, well, let's accumulate some draft picks. Let's develop the guys we have in our system. You know, maybe we get lucky with some trades. But they also haven't really been that active trade-wise. I think, you know, this has been a popular topic of conversation, and I, I think we were going to get into it anyway. But Whit Merrifield has been on the trade block for, like, the last three years, it feels like, and the Royals refuse to move him. Part of that is because he is a valuable player to them, I think, and part of that is because he's, all, he's on a contract that's extremely cheap. So there's no real monetary reason to move him. But, is, but he's, again, he's 32 years old. He's not going to be part of the next good Royals team. I appreciate to a certain degree that the Royals are willing to sign useful, like two, like two war players like Carlos Santana to make this team at least like not competitive necessarily, but not an embarrassment like the Orioles or the pirates. You know, this is a team that like, this is a team that will like, again, will win like 70 to 75 games. I just don't know. I guess this is the thing. Like on the one hand, I rail against like tanking and all that, but on the other hand, it's like, what is really the value of being a seventy-five win team for three years? Yeah, I mean, you're just kind of perpetually rebuilding. It's just this kind of weird. Well, I think they want to kind of be like a. Who would be the closest example of this in baseball? Um, They want to. I mean, because they 
seem like they want to build through the middle. They want to see which young guys hit. They they're betting on yeah, the pipeline. It's, it's and more then, of a, yeah. it's more of the kind of skinny rebuild that like Texas was trying to do. Yeah, except Texas did not pull it off in the least. Kansas City to me kind of falls into that Texas Colorado like Colorado is probably a good one. Know, yeah, maybe Texas, Saint Colorado, Louis a little bit. Like, maybe nah. St. Louis is more competitive than this, but like. It more in that sense of like a bad team that isn't to the studs bad. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That hasn't torn it all down. That is just kind of trying to float along as a in that seventy. And I don't think the the Rangers and the Rockies are necessarily trying to be there. I think they're just there because the Rockies are extremely poorly run, and the Rangers just haven't made many good decisions of late. Um, but again, neither really have the Royal. I mean, that's the thing. These are these are bad teams both because they are intentionally bad and in that they're not signing marquee free agents. They're not, you know. They're not really trying to add impact players, but also because they just don't seem very good at what they're doing. You know, like, yeah, the Royals have, have, have unearthed some, some gems. You know, they've, they found some contributors. Merrifield was a great find. Jorge Solaris was, was a good find. Hunter Dozier was a good find, you know. Again, the, the young pitchers they're developing. Josh Stomont was a great, great find. But, other, but like, on the whole, you know, it's... That's kind of undercut by stuff like Adalberto Mondesi has been terrible, you know, or by the fact that Danny Duffy just really has not been anything better than league average, despite the fact he really kind of needed to be more than that. Or, you know, it, also, how is that dude still on the Royals? It's crazy, isn't it? He feels like he's been there for about 18 years. Um, it's it's it, it's it's quite alarming that he's still a Kansas City it, Royal. To, to me, it just feels like the, the 2020 Royals and the 2021 Royals and the 20. It's 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 just a, it is a perpetual skinny rebuild mm. where you have this this floor of basic competence by doing stuff like signing Carlos Santana and Mike Miner, but you're also not any better than like 75 wins. What you're is just, their farm system waiting. right now? Um, by Fangraphs ranking. They uh, before the 2020 season because we obviously don't have uh, full rankings yet. They were about middle of the pack, somewhere in that kind of 12 to 15 range, mm. which fine. Um, and you know that's fine, but like it's not great. They just they haven't really developed much, and a lot of their guys are like you know Witt, Lacey, Daniel Lynch, Eric Pena, Jackson Coar. Those guys are still a few years away. Um, their closest kind of to the majors good prospect is geez uh uh carlos hernandez who's a uh random pitcher they signed out of venezuela who's already 24 years old and Mm. got knocked around in triple a in 2019 like that's fine oh i didn't know chance adams was on this team um there's still a bit away from like having these new guys come there and, and like maybe that works out, but at the same time, it's like, okay, when those guys get there, then what are the Royals going to do? Because the, the existing good core of this team, as we've noted, Merrifield, Perez, Solaire, Dozier. Um, I mean, at least offensively is either going to have aged out of their primes or is not going to be there by the time these guys are ready. And some of the pitchers will still be there. But pitcher development is very hard, and pitchers are no nowhere near guarantees. Obviously, I don't know. I just I guess I just feel I don't feel like I know where this is going at this point. Beyond hopefully there will be good players at some point in the future, and it just seems like they're just kind of treading water until that. 
And that's, that's, I think, to me, is why the Royals are so kind of uninteresting to talk about generally, because they are just kind of a treading water team. And, like, again, good on, good on Dayton Moore for at least giving fans something remotely competitive as opposed to completely non-competitive. But it, this is still a bad team. It's just a bad team with some semi-useful parts on it. Is there anything useful offensively? Because that, that was the thing that stood out to me. It was just parsing through their numbers. It's just like, fuck, this offense sucks. Yeah. Like, it really, yeah. really sucks. Santana will help because even even last year when he was bad, he, he still put up a 349 on base percentage. And, you know, he might be on the oldest side. He's almost 35. But, you know, he's got a good track record of at least being a patient hitter. And there's something to be said for the value of having a guy in the middle of your lineup who can just take a walk, hit for some power, hits from both sides. And, like, I think they're probably expecting better out of Solaire and Dozier, um, who, who had good 2019s and then just never really got on track in 2020. You know, as I mentioned, Cordero has some upside. Mondesi still has tools for days. He just doesn't know how to draw a walk. I think, obviously, a big thing with this Royals lineup is it's very low in plate patience and plate discipline. This is probably one of the more free-swinging teams in baseball, if not the most free-swinging. And it's just going to be hard to score runs that way because this is also not a... Aside from Solaire and Dozier and, um, I guess, you know, a, a, a healthy Cordero, there's not a whole lot of power here. Mm-hmm. I mean, and there's some, like, kind of hulking power bats along the lines of, like, Ryan McBroom and, and Ryan O'Hearn, who, you know, can, can at least, or theoretically, can slug a little bit. Um, I forgot to know Lucius Fox. Well, Lucius Fox's stock has fallen very far. Um, yeah, this offense is going to struggle. There's just not a whole lot of upside here at the moment. There's, there's, yeah, I, I don't know where the runs come from. I mean, they're going to have to come, they're going to have to come from Solaire and Dozier, and Merrifield and Perez are going to have to stave off aging for at least one more year. Um, and ideally, ideally, Mondesi develops some some semblance of plate discipline, and Santana can turn the clock a little bit. But again, all and this is the thing: even if all of these things go well, this is still at best like a seventy-eight win team. You know, this is still at best going to be one of the one of the worst offensive teams in the American League. Um, yeah, I, I I don't really know where the offense comes from um, beyond the beyond a few of those guys I mentioned, and, and those guys are far from from like guaranteed contributors. You know. Like we're talking, like so, Jorge Soler had a 3.26 on base percentage last year. Alberto Mondesi was a 2.94. Even Merrifield was a 3.25, and he's one of the better hitters on that team. You know, Sally Perez is a 3.53, but that is despite, and I really want to, you know, key in on that word, despite a walk rate of, oops, I had it, I had it before. Now I'm gonna have to find it again. A walk rate of, where did it go? There it is, 1.9%. Yikes! He had a three fifty three on base percentage because he had a three seventy five batting average on balls in play. If that goes down even fifty points, Sally Perez is back to being a below league average hitter. Which at catcher you can live with that, um, but at the same time, uh, yeah, it, it's just kind of a grim picture overall for Kansas City, especially offensively. It's a lot of guys who are going to put up a lot of short plate appearances. It's not good. And uh, I don't great. see it. Uh, I don't see any options in free agency. Do you? Like, is there anything that like intrigues no, you? Like, well, oh, mean, they should get involved in this person. No, and I mean, like, I mean, there are guys who, if they added them, would make them better. Like, yeah, if they if they signed George Springer and DJ LeMahieu and Justin Turner, like, yeah, they'd be better. Yeah, but they're not going to do that. If you're talking about like guys in that tier of Royals players, a la Carlos Santana, that they are currently signing right now. 
Uh, um, uh, <laughs> there's not all, I mean, like, Shinsuchu? Like, <laughs> I mean, if you, okay, if you look at what the Royals need, which is ideally you want some guys who are more in that kind of high OBP side of things. Um, Uh boy, this is not a great free agent hitters market. No, entirely honest. I mean, would Ryan Braun want to go to Kansas City? I don't think so. Maybe Josh if you want to go on some billboards with Patrick Mahomes. I don't know. I mean, look, put me in charge of the Royals and give me the money to do it. And like, yeah, you can make yourself a pretty decent offseason without even like, without even having to plug away at the top of the market. You know, some combination of like. Justin, like Michael Brantley, Justin Turner, and like Marcus Semyon, honestly wouldn't cost all that much and would probably do you pretty good. You know? Um, I just don't know that the Royals are going to do that because, well, they don't seem to care to do that. Um, and that's kind of the thing. Like, if they're just kind of hunting, like, Kyle Schwarber would make a lot of sense for them. Yeah, he would. I think. Um, as a guy where it's like you might as well bring him in because, you know, he still has some arbitration eligibility left. Um, I believe it's like, so you might as well bring him in and see what he's got. See if you can maybe hammer out something long-term. Um, I, I think, I mean, that's more their end of the market. I think is, is, is guys with higher upsides who, you know, are, are available to discount for whatever reason or another, uh, Kyle Schwarber, Nomar Mazzara, um, maybe a, a Travis Shaw's upside is kind of shot at this point. Um, you know, maybe someone like I would say Michael Franco, but they they actually just they they were the ones who non tendered him. Um, but even that list of guys is pretty short. You know, like when you're kind of playing around in the Domingo Santana end of the free agent pool, like you're not really going to get a lot of quality. Um, and that's kind of the thing with the Royals is like if they really if they want to make this team better, there are ways to do it. It's just they got to spend to do it. And if they don't want to spend to do it, well, then they're looking at having to sign guys like. Daniel Murphy and Dart and Marwin Gonzalez and hoping that there's something left there when there probably isn't. No, there's so not. yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't really, and that's the thing. Like, I also don't know how you make this team better because I don't think that's the point at this rate. Like it, it's clearly not the point. The point is just for the Royals to exist and kind of, well, just exist until younger, better players come up. It's basically a repeat of what it was pre 2014 for Kansas city. Um, the trick is, or the trick is going to be, if that is the case, and if that is what happened, uh, or if that is what happens, is ownership and is Dayton Moore, whoever's in charge at that point, going to do like they did in 2014 and say, okay, now we're going all in because we believe in this core. Is that, and is that core going to be as good as the, you know, Eric Hosmer, Lorenzo Kane, Mike Moustakas group? Probably not, but... You know, I, I imagine if you if you had to if you asked Dayton Moore what is the plan, he'd probably say, "Well, that's the plan." You know, we wait for this core to be ready, and once it's in place, then we make some moves to try to to try to supplement it. Great. It just means that the next couple of years are kind of just a waste for everybody involved. It's just less of a depressing waste than they have been for like the Orioles. Yikes. Well, yeah. to wrap up on the Orioles, they start a lot of young starting pitching, right? A lot of yeah, they're, they're not terrible. The, like, the starting have... pitching is young and interesting. Is there is that that the way we can end this for Royals fans to be positive? The young pitching. Yeah, the young pitching is. I mean, there's like I said, there are things that you can. If you're a Royals fan watching the season, 
you're not lacking for guys to who are interesting or who look good or who might be part of like an actually good Royals team. You're just you're just it's just not going to amount to very much in 2021 because the team just doesn't have enough talent to be more than like at its absolute best, like like somewhat below 500. You know, um, and and of course the, always the thing with with young pitching is you always have to hold your breath and hope they don't get hurt because young pitching breaks real quick and real easy. So. Yeah, I mean, there are some positives for the Royals. There are some good things, you know, to there are some good things that they are trying to do and some good things that they have already present. It's just a matter of, you know, when it when is that going to arrive and once it arrives, what are you going to do to 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 supplement it? Because again, the, the core that exists now is is almost certainly not going to be as productive or even there by the time all those young guys are ready to go. Yeah. Go Royals. Um, John Taylor. Um, always a pleasure, my friend. Uh, who are we, who are we tackling in the AL central next week? In the AL central next week. Let's do the, let's do the twins. Let's talk about the Minnesota twins. This is the year. This is the year. The twins break that playoff. Another, another, another team where, uh, his no trade list, notwithstanding, why were they not all over you? Darvish. Boy, would you Darvish have made a lot of sense for the Minnesota Twins? Yeah, maybe they're they're gearing up for Trevor Bauer. Who knows? Um, could be a crazy week. Who 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 knows? Who who's to say, John? Um, John, thank you as always, my friend. Uh, we will be back next week. All right. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.